Welcome to Pros Tinted Glasses. I'm Katie. And I'm Bailey. And we have, I'm honestly pretty impressed with us, Bailey. We have found a way to make an episode relate to John Green for the fourth episode in a row. It's just a John Green summer. It really is. You know, we've had hot girl summers. This one is John Green summers, which I guess is like moody, anti-pixie, anti-manic pixie dream girl summer. With a side of like nerdy science. <laughs> Lots of nerdy science. Yes, for sure. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> that Katie says that because we read tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, uh, basically because John Green blurbed it and we were like, well, that's enough for us. Yeah. And I'm going to just read the whole blurb because like, tell me you wouldn't read this if John Green said this about a book. Utterly brilliant, in this sweeping, gorgeously written novel, Gabrielle Zevin charts the beauty, tenacity, and fragility of human love and creativity. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is one of the best books I've ever read. John Green. Like, damn. Like, we were interested in it anyway. Um, And then we saw that and it was like, yep, sold, done, in. Yeah, I was really interested in it. Um, it's got a really beautiful cover. It's got the um, one of the uh, Hakusai waves, I think, or the Hakusai wave, I think it's called. Yeah, they which is referenced in the novel multiple times. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, it's actually the Hakusai wave is like I think I should have done any amount of research before this, but I think based on what I know, it's that he he did. Um, lots of different views of Mount Fuji. Uh, and this is one of the ones that became the most famous. Yes. So it's really, it's a really beautiful and it's a really um, kind of iconic image. And that is the cover of the book. And then also the title and the author's name are in these, this beautiful rainbow, like really dynamic font. It's got lots of really cool shadowing. Um, I just think the cover is beautiful. I definitely would have bought it regardless I think I am a little annoyed because I think that like regular hardbacks are shiny but I got the book of the month hardback which is not shiny um so I almost think I need another copy so I can have a shiny one Bailey is covering her face well so that's because I did not get it through book of the month because I was like oh it's not as up my alley as like one of the other books from book of the month so I'll just like get it from the library or something and Mm -hmm. I ended up getting it on audible with an audible credit and you're right, like, I'm mad that I don't have a copy of the book because it is so pretty and also because I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, maybe I should have checked at Target. They didn't have anything else I wanted, so. Yeah, it happens like that sometimes. Uh, if you've ever seen my Twitter, you'll know that my Target, something is just fucking happening at truly, my Target. Truly, your Target is cursed. Like, today there was potting soil on the floor. Like, it was in bags that were, like, 99% intact. But, like, disaster was going to strike re-that potting soil. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't have anything I needed today, really. The uh, There was a whole pallet of styrofoam and boxes. And mm. there was also multiple pallets of, of stuff just completely blocking the entire accessory section, like, on two sides. Um I don't know. My target is just a really weird space. Nothing will top the one day that I sent you, like, the videos of me just walking through the target. Every aisle had employee carts full of merchandise and pallets full of merchandise just sitting in the middle of the aisles. 
There were like smashed up Coke cans in one aisle, like not the Coke aisle, another aisle. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I feel like I have some like pretty unique insight into this because I previously worked at Target for about three years. And so like I have seen instances of that happening in the Target that I used to work at when they like had double or triple truck days or when they were understaffed unexpectedly. But it was one of those things where like when that was happening, everyone was like panicking, trying to fix it. And Bailey's Target seems to always be like that and nobody gives a damn. So it's really interesting to me. No. And today we had zero checkout lanes open. (laughs) Which mm-hmm. is pretty standard now. Um, yeah, they really expect you to do it yourself in self-checkout. Yes, but two of the self-checkouts are broken. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and some woman had gotten a gift card, I guess, through like Target Circle. Her purchases meant she got a gift card. Sometimes that happens. But she did not understand the concept. And English was clearly not her first language. Sure. And there was no one available to like help explain to her. So she was just staring and, like, tapping the screen repeatedly, trying to, like, exit that notification. It, it was painful. It was painful. So I got um, passion fruit sparkling water and and a clearance top, and, and I left. Yeah, it's fair. Um, another sad side note, um, I just scrolled over to Twitter because I was changing tabs and accidentally landed on Twitter as one does when one's a Twitter addict. Um, but I saw that Olivia Newton-John died. Yes, I saw that in Target. I need to stop going to Target. It's a bad place. <laughs> it is. Capital B, capital P. Just, I think just your Target specifically, though. Other Targets are fine. Or maybe, maybe Targets without you in them are fine. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm somewhat unwilling to drive, like, ten minutes farther to the next Target. Yeah, fair. Because then I have to get on a highway. No one needs that. Well, anyway, um, rest in peace, Olivia Newton-John. That made me very sad. I should watch Grease this weekend or something. Yes. Back to to uh, John Green. I don't have a good transition for this. <laughs> back to tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Yeah, back to not actually John Green, just John Green made us read it. Yeah, so you you have read another book by Gabrielle Zevin, right? Yes, I read The Storied Life of A.J. Fickroy. Fickery, I don't know. I, I read it, I didn't listen to it which means that I will forever be playing the game of, am I pronouncing this character's name correctly? Sure. Uh, for a book club in, I think it was like 2016, honestly. Yeah, that would be about right. It looks writer. like it came yeah, out 2018. 2014. 2018, actually, but like early 2018. Um, and in keeping with my rating uh, or my rule of never rating things, I don't know how I felt about said book. <laughs> I That's believe... Fair. I actually had some thoughts I took notes on, and I was going to bring it up later, because I think there's a spot where it'll fit better. Uh, So, yeah. I have read that other book, which you have not, and I did not realize until after the first seven minutes of (laughs) what we are now going to call Tomorrow Times 3, because I am not saying tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow every single time. Um, the first seven minutes of it, then I was like, oh, it's by this same author. This makes so much more sense now. (laughs) Um, And it does actually make me have less strong feelings. I basically messaged Katie about seven minutes into the audiobook, and I was like, wow, I already have thoughts. They are not good. (laughs) 
And I was, I was not much ahead of you at the time. And so I was really like, I didn't have any feelings about it really at the time. And so I was confused as to what, what your strongest feelings were at first. Yeah, I can tell you now because I wanted to be circumspect about them then, but I, I just, the, the language that she was using when she was introducing Sam was so like almost overwrought. And I just felt so annoyed that it was bordering on pretentious for those seven minutes. Yeah, she she definitely does have a little bit of a... a, a she seems to really like pretentious-y words. She seems to like big words and interesting words and, like, prose that honors that kind of language. I mean, she used airsats, like, in the first seven minutes. <laughs> Which is a word I know because of um, a series of unfortunate events and for probably no other reason. Isn't that why our entire generation knows that word? Because that's why I know it. <laughs> it's like the sixth book in the series of unfortunate events. So that's why yeah. I know it. Yeah. Anyways, it, it like once I realized it was Gabrielle Zevin, I was like, well, this does make more sense because I do remember that being one of my main criticisms of the storied life of A.J. Fickroy. Um, but then I kind of got over it as I was listening. I didn't hate it as much. Once I settled into it, but man, those first seven minutes, I like took a picture of the screen on my ca- uh, camera, the screen of my camera, the screen of my car showing how far <laughs> into the, the book I was like, man, I don't like this. Anyway, uh, this, I guess, is our spoiler warning now when yes. we're going to get a little more into it. Yeah, I was about to get the spoiler warning, so I'm proud that we both remembered it and we didn't even yes. write it down. So we're getting better about it. Right, which means next time we do a book talk, we will inevitably forget. Yeah, obviously. Obviously. Yeah, so we're going to get a little bit more in depth. This is where normally we would give a summary, and you know how good we are at summaries. This, I think, is going to be interesting. I don't know if it's going to be easier or harder to summarize, considering this is, like, a pretty completely character-driven novel, and there's, like, not really a plot. (laughs) Right, I was going to say, I feel like it... It's going to be very easy to put together, like, three lines mm-hmm. of summary. Um, and then I can also see us giving a play-by-play of a novel that spans two and a half decades. Yeah. So, we'll see how it goes. It's always a coin flip with yeah. us. Yeah. I can give it a shot. So, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is about basically the whole life of two friends who met when they were very young. Because Sadie's sister was in the hospital and Sam had been in a very bad car accident and was in and out of the hospital a lot. And they immediately bonded over playing Mario. This turned into like a a long friendship during that time revolving around games every time that um, Sam was in the hospital. However, Sadie also used the time playing games with Sam as, like, community service for her bat mitzvah, which led to a huge falling out when they were around that age, and they didn't see each other again until they were in a, like, metro station in college, which they then decided they were going to be friends again, they were going to create a game, their game became phenomenal, they started a game company called Unfair Games, and we follow the next years of their lives as they go through interpersonal things, continue to create games... Um, Sadie falls in love with, gets with their other business partner, Marks, who has been Sam's roommate since he started college and is my favorite character. Editorializing. That was my first editorialization, though, <laughs> yeah, so was, I feel like that's pretty good. I made it pretty so far. 
Good for you. Um, and then, unfortunately, there is a shooting at the office, and Marks does not survive it, and it leads to, like, another break, and then there is reconciliation at the end of the novel. Throughout this, there are many games that are created by Unfair Games, and there are many instances of playing video games. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, because if I start to delve into, like, all of the games and all that, we will be here forever. <laughs> When they're kind of not relevant to a summary. Yeah, no, 100%. I agree. I think you did a good job. It's it's just their, we follow their lives and through, you know, like Bailey said, almost 30 years of them being friends and not being friends as much. And it's very, like, things happen. Like, there are, there are plot points. There just is not a plot, really. It's just about, like, the, the two characters and their interpersonal journey. Right, which is a novel we've established, a novel type that we tend to like Mm -hmm. here on Prose Tinted Glasses. Yeah, for sure. I will say, I think that my initial reaction, you know, I I came into it expecting to really, really love it based pretty solely on the John Green testimony and the really pretty cover. And I don't feel like it hooked me right away. And when I finished it, I was like, yeah, I really liked parts of that but I don't know um but I finished it last week and I've thought about it pretty much every day since which um to me is kind of one of the the marks of a good book and I think it's kind of I think it's growing on me the farther away from it I get and I think it will continue to do that which is a really interesting experience that I I only have with a handful of books yeah it's definitely I think that's the way I've been planning to describe it to people is that it is it is a it is a thinking book and I'm not necessarily known as much like to read books like that. I really do love my escapism mm-hmm. or I'm reading like heavy fucking hitters like Blacktop Wasteland or something, you know, like really emotional novels. And this sort of middle ground area, like I said in um our friend Nicole messaged the group today like, "How did you guys like this book?" and we both were like, "Oh my god. Hold on." <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it's like there's good emotional connection. There's things to think about and sit with, but it is not one of those books that ends up being so heavy that you can't think about it for a little bit. Yeah, I think that what I landed on, so Bailey and I had kind of sort of been planning to do this book as an episode or maybe another book. Um, we hadn't talked it through all the way, but then when we were talking this morning um, about it to Nicole, I kind of started really digging into my feelings about it. And that's when I was like, I think that we could totally do this as a whole episode. And what I sort of have landed on is that I think that the characters that Sam and Sadie felt so real to me, um, like almost not like not too real, but more real than I feel like a lot of book characters feel. And so I was getting way more frustrated with them because their their quirks and their flaws were like too real world and it took me a little while to realize that I think because from like a character perspective they it felt like they were almost acting irrationally but then when I stepped back and realized that like oh like they're experiencing two completely different things because they're two different people their reactions made a lot more sense and also my frustration with them made a lot more sense yeah I mean they're acting 
Okay, a cloud just came out and my room just got so fucking dark. <laughs> Look at me right now. Yeah, you're like, I can like, you're very pixelated right now. I can barely see you. I have no lights on. That's why, because it's like, <laughs> it's the middle of the day. Anyway, yeah, it felt in some ways like you were, re- like someone was telling you, their, like your friend was telling you their problems and you were getting frustrated because you're like, oh my gosh, what are you thinking? Like, no, let's do this or let's talk about this. Um, And they were characters. Mm -hmm. And I do have to wonder if part of that is just because we aren't the same age as them throughout the entire novel. Obviously, I was not 11 during the beginning of the novel. Mm -hmm. Um, But we are at an age that is much closer to some of the final reflections of this book. And I wonder if that helped us really connect with them through some of that process. I don't, I don't know. It, I also felt very frustrated with the characters. I had to tell Katie, like, I agree with you, but let's wait because we're going to talk about this later. Mm-hmm. Let's take it off, off the group chat. But I was like, I also spent a lot of time feeling frustrated with Sadie, especially. Um, Sam, not as many times because I think, as you said, Katie, I'm going to steal your thunder with this, <laughs> that we, we get Sam's perspective first for some of these things. And so we're predisposed to be, like, more on his side because we don't get as much of Sadie's depth until later. Yeah. I also think that even once we do get more Sadie perspective, I think that Sam is, like, much more vulnerable with the reader. Like, we see a lot more of his, like, traumas and his sadness and his reasoning um, and, you know, he's, he's a really awkward character and he's a really awkward person and it, it's presented in a, like a very relatable way. And so you kind of want to protect Sam from the outset. I feel like it's extra evident with, uh, like Mark's when Sam and Mark's become roommates, Mark's just like immediately starts taking care of Sam. Like Mark's just pays for stuff and he like leaves stuff for Sam and he does it in a very like kind and gentle way where he is not like Sam they're they're not acting like it's a charity like and they're not acting like it's a big deal it's just like oh oh no I like got too much food Sam you better eat some and stuff like that and just a very like loving and protective relationship and so we we've known Sam since he was a kid we've been in Sam's head since he was a kid and then we also see Mark's behaving towards him this in this way. And then I think that we also are predisposed to feel that way about him. Yeah. I was actually just going to say the same thing about Mark's being kind of an embodiment of that extra care and gentleness. And Sadie doesn't necessarily have that, which isn't a bad thing at all, but it just means that we don't, we see Mark's being so gentle and we don't see Sadie being gentle. And so at first we're kind of like, Sadie, why don't you just do this? Well, that's because she's not Mark's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's she's just always been kind of spikier as a character. Uh, like going back to their initial falling out when they were kids, she started out filling out this... Um, uh, what's the word? Community service form. Community service form. Timesheet. Like yeah, timesheet. So she um, was just offered to do it by the hospital because she was the first person to get Sam to talk at all after his accident. And so she started filling it out because she needed hours for her bat mitzvah. And it was like kind of a win-win for her because she was getting these hours, but then also she was getting to hang out with her friend. And then 
the way that we see it in her head is that she just, it's just like a game, like, oh, how many hours can I get? And like, she kind of knows that it's wrong and that Sam's not going to like hearing about it. But she also like, for her, it very much is not a community service project. It's just like that feeling of accomplishment by like seeing the, it's like, it's like a game, right? Seeing the numbers go up um, and like winning at whatever, which is something that I really can relate to in terms of like, the stupidest things give me dopamine like, hits, the right? Book like spreadsheet, like yeah, the book spreadsheet. Just like seeing numbers go up, like tracking stuff that's stupid can really give me that shot of dopamine that I need. And so I, I relate to that, and especially with Sadie having been a kid and not being able to like express that necessarily. Um, but it does come off pretty callously, right? As like, oh, I'm just hanging out with you to get numbers on a spreadsheet, even though like internally it's much more complicated. Right. Yeah. And that was tough to to read, too, because, like, as the reader, you know that this is going to blow up. Mm-hmm. Like, this is going to be this is going to be bad. And it's totally fair of, of Sam to be hurt by Sadie's actions, especially because he does not know the inside of her head about it being a game. He only sees like, oh, you know, this girl comes and fills out the timesheet when she spends time with me. Mm-hmm. So... That leads to, like, this falling out, and they don't see each other again for years. And I thought that was a very interesting premise, but I really... Also really did not know where that was taking us when I first started, like, reading. I was like, what are we doing here? Yeah, I think this book really elegantly handled, like, the the different time periods. I think it was really captivating in a way that's really hard to do. Um, I thought it was very deftly done. But... Still, like, even Sadie as an adult, I feel I feel like I'm going to get into a little bit of sticky territory here because, like, I want to talk in a nuanced way about this, and I, at, like, I just don't want anything to come off wrong. But Sadie, um, at some point, gets into a relationship with her professor, Dove. And it is obviously, like, first of all, he's her professor, so it's already a bad power imbalance. Um, and then it does later on become abusive or, like, borderline abusive. I, I would say abusive, but the, the problem that I'm having here is that we're inside Sadie's head for a lot of it, and she, like, excuses it away a lot, which I think is really authentic and truthful to, like, somebody in an, in an abusive relationship. Like, they're trying to justify it to themselves, um, but since we're in her head, she's also justifying it to us. And it's hard, it makes her harder to like, because like, from our perspective, we see this relationship where, you know, she's in a bad place. She's with a man she shouldn't be with. She's being like physically hurt it's under the guise of like, quote unquote, consensual S&M for pretty much all of it. Um, but, and then she is like justifying it back to us. And so it feels very like uncomfortable to confront and it feels very like true to life of like how we treat women in those positions and you know it it's it's hard to read but it it makes her harder to like yes she spends most of the time that she's in the relationship with dove minimizing all of the things that he's doing minimizing the fact that he's married for most of their relationship if not all i can't remember exactly minimizing the fact that when she brought this game over Ichigo, the first game, over to his house, he handcuffed her to the bed for the duration of him playing it. 
she minimizes a lot of these things that are happening. And so, one, it makes it seem like not a big deal to the narrative. And as you're saying, like, two, it, it makes her less sympathetic because it's it's clearly from the start a relationship that's bad and you know it. And it's not written necessarily in a way that gets you to sympathize with her, even though she's very clearly the victim. And so, yeah, you you spend part of the time being like, Sadie, what are you doing? Why are you with Dove? But I also spent part of the time being a little frustrated that we never got anything from Sam or Marks about her being with this man. And I don't, I don't know if that's just the perspectives or what, but like, yeah, there's nothing, there's never a time where they come in and they're like, why are you with someone who was your professor? Even if he's not currently, the basis of your relationship was an imbalance of power. Even when they come along and finally like decide to move to California and Marks kind of frames it to, Marks kind of frames it to Sam as like, oh, and also we really need to get Sadie away from Dove. Like Sadie wants to leave Dove and we have to help her. Uh, And that's kind of all they do about it. And it's not nothing, but it's also like, Marx is manipulating both of them in that situation where he's trying to get um, Sadie to go to California so that Sam will have his surgery. She's trying to get Sam. He's trying to get Sam to go to California um, to have the surgery. And then he's like telling him, oh, and also this will help Sadie. You know, it's like they only bring it up when it suits them and not directly to Sadie even. I was just about to say it's not direct help. Like it's not wrong that Sadie had expressed that she didn't want to be in this and that moving to California would be an opportunity for their, for her to get out of that situation and also in a way that takes the onus off of her being the one leaving, really. Because she doesn't have to be the one, like, I'm leaving you. She's like, oh, we're going to California for unfair games. But it also, yeah, it's not them talking to Sadie about her relationship with Dove. It's Marks and Zoe using manipulation to get what ultimately is his best interest. And that's getting to California. Part of it is rooted in his care for his friends, but he he isn't doing it directly, which I think in a lot of ways we get Marks presented as, like, the least fallible character because we really don't get a lot from his point of view. But but I think that is his, his flaw is that he cares a lot about these people, but he doesn't ever care about them directly. Yeah, he does. And I think it almost comes back to how we were talking about how he would take care of Sam, you know, at the beginning when they were roommates by sort of like, you're almost like leaving a a dish of food out for like a feral animal, right? And then like hoping that they take it. Uh, And I think that's what works for Sam. And that's how he needs to be helped because Sam has a lot of baggage around being sick and being, you know, in need, Um, not only from his his busted foot and like the car crash, but also he comes from a much lower class background than both Sadie and Marks. And so he really feels like he needs to help himself. And so when you offer help to him directly, he gets really skittish about it. But Sadie is not the same as Sam. And so I feel like they're both kind of trying to help Sadie the same way Marks helped Sam. Um, and it, it's, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I mean, I think we actually get a POV from Sam about how he, like, actively does not acknowledge his disability. And mm-hmm. that's the way that Marx is helping him, by, like, never acknowledging that Sam needs help, but instead 
helping accidentally, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Like, but but we we're also shown repeatedly that Sadie is not that type of person. That she does everything directly. She does not like wait to say something or anything like that. You know, she goes for it. Um, and and yeah, Marks and Sam are using the same methods that they use for Sam on Sadie, and that's where. Some of these communication breakdowns happen that lead to some of the character-driven moments in this novel. The the falling outs, the moving ons, etc. Mm-hmm. And I, I, all this talk about Sadie was sort of to circle back to one of the first things that you said to me about this morning, this about the book this morning was that you spent so much time annoyed at Sadie, even though Sam de- deserved just as much annoyance. And I think that like Sadie is much more like distant and clinical, even in her own head and in her points of view, to the point where, you know, all that stuff about her relationship with Dove, again, I think it feels very authentic. And I think we need to reexamine culturally how we think about women in abusive relationships. But that's just how it came across in the narrative. And then later on, one of the things that she gets mad at Sam about is about never helping her with Dove and and specifically about how Sam asked her to go back to Dove to ask for his game engine so that they could produce Ichigo. Um, and she starts thinking about like, oh, how selfish that was of Sam to like send me back into a, like an abusive relationship. And, you know, up until almost that exact point in the novel, I don't think Sadie had ever acknowledged the abuse inherent in the relationship. And so that felt very jarring because, you know, she had justified it in her own head until that moment. And I feel like she almost had to like put the blame for it onto Sam so that she didn't have to kind of realize it herself. Another thing that felt very authentic, but that pissed me off because, you know, Sam has done a lot wrong, but like that was not one of the things that he did wrong, I don't think. I don't think so either. I, I This is, again, like, really dicey territory because these aren't real people. We don't have every motivation. We don't have every situation, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But even if Sam knew that, you know, this game engine came from her, someone that she'd been in a relationship with, Sam wasn't sending her back there to get in a relationship with him. Sam was sending mm-hmm. her back there to get a game engine. And so part of continuing that relationship is not Sam's fault. I don't really think any of it's Sam's fault. But, you know, the abusive person is to blame. So Dove. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also, I want to be really clear that, like, Sadie is also not to blame for her abuse. Right. We, like, I do not want to victim blame any person, real or fictional. Um, I just think that there's a really interesting and nuanced... Um, perspective here just because of the way we experience Sadie's point of views. Right. And also, Sam and Sadie are different people with different life experiences. And so even if Sam knew that Sadie had been in a relationship with Dove, at this point, they had just reconnected. Sam likely did not know the extent of that relationship because she was currently trying not to be in it when they were making Mm -hmm. the plans to make the game. So, you're right. When Sadie is like, oh, Sam knew this and he sent me back, it's highly possible he didn't, and he didn't consider that that would be an option because Sam had not been in a relationship of that type. That's not something that he Mm -hmm. would know about. Yeah. 
But that, like, that's the one thing that, like, really annoyed me about the characters. And that's when I, like, sat and when I, like, sat back and really thought about them from each of their perspectives. Like, you know, as, like, a character, again, we we see, we just have more sympathy for Sam, I think, generally. Just yeah. because of, I think he's a lot more vulnerable. I think um, he, he's a lot less clinical. He's also, like, he's dealing with class issues, with disability issues. Like, he is much more pitiable, um, because he's had to overcome more hardship. Again, not that Sadie has not had any hardship. Right. But, and Sam is also a, like, quiet introvert type character who, it, the way it's presented to us is if he was left alone, he would not do any of these things because there wasn't someone there to do it with him. Well, like, later on in the novel, like, he literally would probably not have ever gotten his foot amputated and it would have just, like, rotted off if his friends had not stepped in and made him move to California and get the surgery. Right. So, that yeah, like, I think that's part of what, it's not just the disability or the class issues. It's also just that, like, he's presented as, like, a meek introvert who needs, a, like, help and we have a predisposition, like, small kittens, Mm-hmm. Um, and Sadie, Sadie's not a small kitten, nor is she ever presented to be. Like I said, she's much more direct. You use the word clinical. That's probably more accurate. But I think that's also mm-hmm. part of what makes these characters so real is that especially when they're going through all of this and in the beginning, they're like fairly young, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, they're still figuring out who they are. They're making mistakes with each other. Like, you know, instead of talking to Sadie about how she felt about going back to talk to Dove, Sam was like, you should go get it from Dove. And instead of Sadie saying, I don't want to do that, she she did it because of all the external pressures on her to make this game. So, like, I think that that's just part of what makes them so real and all of this stuff. And then, and her coming to terms with it is also part of the process. And it, it is much later in the novel that she even starts to come to terms with it. In the scene where she's saying, like, Sam knew and he sent me back there anyway. And I think a problem that both of them have in, like, slightly different ways is, again, a very real thing. But, like, when they feel slighted by something, game over, lights out, right? Like, they do not once ever talk to each other about how they feel about a conflict. But in Gabrielle Zevin's words... It sounds so much more realistic than when you see it as like a rom-com trope to me. Yeah, yeah. This is not like a, this is not a like idiot plot where if they had just said a single word to each other, like it would have fixed everything. Like if they had talked about it, they would have had to talk through a lot of shit because they both had very valid points of views about like most of their areas of conflict. Um, but they, they just didn't do that, which feels unfortunately pretty pretty authentic right i was gonna say i i don't think anything would have been fixed for them having more conversations about it at the time because both of them were had very valid feelings of hurt but at the same time yeah they don't talk about it but the, the way that it is written you don't feel as mad at them as sometimes you do when you see the idiot plot types play out you're like i totally understand why you did not want to like talk to sam anymore why you know why you didn't want to talk to sadie anymore and and Marx is just in the middle. He's in the middle for Doing all of his it. Best. Yeah. Oh, Marx, what a pure soul. I know. Again, I, I think we don't spend a lot of time on his flaws, but I think he had them. 
Oh, he he was kind of the foil to everybody else's flaws in some ways that that kept them together. Um, and that's why we just don't explore his because three people would have been too much, like the emotional <laughs> train wreck. Yeah, I think his flaws also are like even painted in much more of a rosy light than the others, and it's Marx is much more of like an extroverted person and he's much more like able to show love than either of the other two. But I think, um, I think he was almost given too much of that. And like, that's kind of presented as his flaw. Like early on, it's talked about how he like will date everyone and he never like stays in a relationship very long. And usually he like sort of tricks people into breaking up with him, but then they still stay friends cause he's so great. And so it's kind of presented as, like, he can't really commit. He doesn't really want to. Um, and he is just kind of this, like, I don't know if flighty is the right word, but definitely, like, he's just a happy-go-lucky guy who doesn't really want to be tied down um, until he does. Right. And he's been able to get away with that in a lot of aspects of his life, it seems like. Like, he started... Part of the whole premise that of Mark's getting involved this closely was, like, he was supposed to be in London on an internship, and I don't believe we ever got explanation. He's just like, mm, it didn't work out, so I'm home now. Mm, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of his relationships were like, oh, didn't work out. Okay. And and we don't get his, PO, his point of view as much. So maybe he is a little more devastated, but reading some of the way they talk, the other characters talk about his relationships, it's like, not only do they not last that long, they don't seem to have, like, a deep effect on him the same way they do on the other partner. But it, I don't know, it is interesting just the way he does fly through the different things in life and, and manages with that all throughout the beginning of the novel. I think that honestly, um, the way that Marx is able to show love and the way that Sam and Sadie are not is kind of like the central thesis of the book almost. Um, there's a part, I didn't pull up the quote, so I'm going to get it a little bit wrong, but there's a part towards the end where Sam talks about how he had never wanted to say, I love you, how he always wanted to show people that he loved them and that he thought that that was much more powerful. But then now that he has, is old enough and has enough life experience, he's like, and how like fucking stupid was that? Like, you should be telling people you love them all the time. You should say it until they get annoyed with it. You should say it until they, like, it has no meaning. Like, there's no reason not to tell people that you love them. Um, and it took him, you know, his whole life until he had long past, um, missed his window with Sadie. Um, and that's another thing. I think it's in the text of the book, but I also saw it in one of the summaries that the book is about two people who are often in love, but never lovers. Um, I, I really love that. I read the, I think I read that either before I started or like halfway through and I was like, wow, I hate that because if I had read that before I started, I probably would have been slightly more predisposed to not like the, this book. And that that's a me thing. Like I think that quote is perfectly accurate, but I think that the way that the the like love is in the book is a way that I I liked and not in like a, a romancy way in the same way that romance books have it. But if I had seen that quote, I feel like I would have associated it with the romancy way and then been like, oh, I don't want to read that. So again, it's not like th that quote is perfectly accurate. And it's not their fault that I would interpret it incorrectly had I not read the novel. Mm -hmm. Sure. That makes sense. I like personally, I'm sort of obsessed with with love that's not like typical romantic love. Like I love a big, a good romance. I love a good rom-com, but the like 
the times that people are in love with each other or love each other but can't be in love with, with each other or they're in love with each other but they can't be together but they still have to be around each other. Like, I think that complicated love is just a really fascinating life state. I think it's one that um, in real life is kind of hard to to have and examine because jealousy is just too, like, common. Um, and so I think it was really interesting for me to read about Sam and Sadie and like two people that like clearly love each other to the point of like sometimes you can only get that mad at someone that you love right Mm -hmm. to the point that they can get that mad at each other and like be out of each other's lives but still in each other's lives um you know it's just a really it's fascinating for me so I really liked that aspect of it it is so quietly heartbreaking to like think about all of the stuff that they have been through and all of the ways that they were so close to connecting on on love but didn't and i i just i have not read a novel like this in a long time this sort of like contemporary covering a long period of time real life character driven novel where you just are with them as they go through all these changes you know, like a plot-driven novel, characters obviously change, but it is always fairly rapid. Like a plot-driven novel, is, it just feels different even when characters do go through growth. And this growth is, is a really unique way of writing. And for as much as I spent time early in the episode hiding on Gabrielle's vocabulary choices, it does really make the feel of this novel all that much better once you're through with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a really interesting relationship with, like, the quote-unquote um, pretentious, like, language. I, like, I went through a really pretentious phase in high school, obviously, as a little know-it-all. Um, and then I went through, like, a hard left phase where I thought that anyone doing anything, like, quote-unquote highbrow was just, like, being a dumbass, like, being an asshole. And now, I like, I've settled in to, like, the middle ground, as a lot of times we do as we age after we've swung wildly back and forth uh and i think that gabrielle zevin really kind of threads that needle where she's using quote-unquote pretentious language but it's like it's very beautiful and evocative and it's not trying to be like look how fucking smart i am it's much more like it's just very um i'm having trouble finding the words ironically but it's very evocative of like the time and the place and like the the mindset of the characters and like it's taking it's like the text is taking itself seriously without trying to present itself as something like highbrow right it it's almost nostalgic for something that you've never gotten to experience when you're reading this novel and so yes well like i said i did not like the first seven minutes or so but once i realized who it was and therefore got a better idea of what it was trying to do I was like, oh, okay, I really think this is going to work. And it does pull you in in a soft way. You know, act- uh, plot-driven novels, YA, stuff like that, it grabs you by the arm and it yanks you along behind the horse. This one, slip- this kind of novel, like, slips a blanket over your shoulders and tucks it in on either side of your hands and gives you a cup of cocoa. That's how I feel. They're just two completely different things, but both of them are are good in their own respect. I don't know. I 
I didn't expect to like this as much as I did, but much like you, Katie, I the longer I'm sitting with it, the more I'm like, this was a really good book. And it has a lot of really big feelings. Literally, the more we, like, in the 45 minutes we've been talking about it, I've, like, grow, like it's grown on me more and more. I think it's just one that I kind of had to, to sit with um, and really think about. And, I ha- like, it's one that sticks with you that makes you think about it, which I really like. Yes. Um, another thing I really liked was the bit about um, Sam says that play is the most intimate experience two people can have, maybe even more intimate than sex. Um, and I think that that is a really interesting, like, piece of like clearly how he views his relationship with Sadie at some points like he loves her so much like it's they love each other too much like they love each other more than than people who have sex um, and I think it's also interesting because um, Sam has some big old flash and red sexual hang-ups um, I think largely due to his shame about his foot and his disability and and also I'm sure about like having sort of missed the window to like date Sadie and he's like well I like we don't even need sex. Like we're too, we're better than sex. Right. I, points, you know, when they're not fighting. Right. I did like that. I think it does speak to, um, also connection. Uh, and I think, and part of that might be influenced by some of the closest experience Sam has to sex before he considers this is, is like with Mark, like living with Marks, the association of Marks who just, has a lot of relationships that don't last very long and therefore I'm a, I'm assuming multiple sexual partners and Sam doesn't see that as the same level of connection that he has with Sadie when they're playing games because they've always done been playing games um so it is interesting to see those two different types of connections and please do not misconstrue me when I'm saying like Mark moves through sexual partners that is not I don't mean that in like a derogatory way at all I'm saying that we're I'm playing the two things off of each other in that. Um but yeah, I, I deeply agree with you that there's something going on there with Sam and, and sexual hang ups and all of that. Yeah, he does eventually have at least one sexual relationship that we know of in the text of the book, which I thought was almost an interesting choice to not um just like I I thought for a long time that he was going to be like, I guess, asexual. He never he reads pretty asexual to me just as someone who doesn't have very much interest in sex, but I, you know, I guess he did. Yeah. Uh, it almost makes it more interesting to me that he's able to equate the play and sex yes. the way that he does. I, I think the whole thing is interesting. I think too, because we get, because this book spans so many years and so many different things, he's, we see a lot of themes coming back. We see a lot of things get referenced um, and and change about people as explicit external confirmation that they're growing and changing as people. The one example that sticks out to me is how fairly early on they say like, oh yeah, Sam like doesn't drink or do anything. He is like the after all of his pain meds and and surgeries and hospital experiences, he's like not interested in substances. And then he he has this new partner, the one who he ends up having sex with, who like offers him a joint and he was like you know what i guess i'll try weed and then when sadie Mm -hmm. sees him smoke she's like what Mm -hmm. so it's yeah that's i feel like that's interesting there are a few i can't remember it exactly because i didn't write it down and i'm gonna kick myself forever but there was something else referenced fairly early on that then later 
air quote organically came back up with like another character and I was like oh look it again like I think I'm the Leo meme a ton where I'm just like wait <laughs> that was that <laughs> I know that right I've seen that I thought that was a really good part of the the novel where it came back um so I there are so many little aspects of this I like and I think for the next couple days I'm just gonna keep being like oh dang Katie we should have talked about this oh shoot we should have talked about that yeah I agree like I feel like we've gone so deep into it already at least with like the, with regards to the characters and the character relationships and we really haven't even touched on and I'm not really sure we need to go deep into a lot of this but I think it's definitely worth mentioning that like in addition to all of this great character work the the text has really interesting conversations about um like appropriation uh their first their first game Ichigo is uh, based on a like it's centered around Japanese culture and they're um, Korean and Jewish and so they talk explicitly like later on in the text of like oh like if this if we had done this later or if we had been older like would we have been able to make this game would we have talked about it as appropriation things like that um, and also really interesting conversations about class specifically around like quote-unquote selling out and when they um sell Ichigo they have these two offers one of which it like would give them way more creative control and way less money and one of them um, would basically force them to do a sequel to the game and give them way more money and you know kind of that debate between artistic integrity and like who gets to have artistic integrity because obviously like Sam needs the money for his medical bills and he had just had another big um, stay in the hospital. And so he basically convinces Sadie and Marks that they like to get the, to go with the company that will give them more money and, you know, all of the resentment that it creates between them later on. I think that, that it just does a really deft job at talking about some of those things. I think that the scene where they were discussing those, the two offers and the two options and Sam and Sadie go out onto the balcony to talk that basically made my skin crawl because I felt for both of them, we explicitly get Sam's reasons. He needs money. Mm -hmm. We don't explicitly get Sadie's reasons, which is not only creative control because she isn't as worried about the money, but the offer they ended up taking, the one with all the money, the men at that company were openly sexist to Sadie. and But mm -hmm. she never said back to Sam... She never said in any of the conversations, I'm not as interested in this offer because I think they're pieces of shit, you know? And so they ended up going with the offer that got more money because Sam was openly said to Sadie, I need money. And Sadie never said, these men are rude and hurtful and could potentially cause major problems. And they do touch on that much later near the very end when Sam and Sadie reconcile in their late 30s when Sadie was like, this new generation doesn't have to put up with the things that I just thought I had to do mm -hmm. to make it in the gaming industry and accepting the offer from the pieces of shit men is one of the things that she likely felt she had to do. And that's why she didn't bring it up. But it also, as the reader, you know, both of those things and you're sitting there and you're like, no, both of you have such good reasons for the offer that you have. And I hate this. Mm hmm. I also think that that's maybe one of the only times that I can think, at least that I can think of off the top of my head, that there was a conflict between Sadie and Sam. And I was just like very 
clearly on Sadie's side. Um, like I, another layer to this with the creative control was that they had envisioned Ichigo kind of as genderless and they, cause it's a, it's a video game about a child that gets lost in a storm and you're the child trying to make your way back to civilization. And they were like, well, it's just like a little three or four year old kid with a bowl cut. Like it could be a girl, it could be a boy. So they always called Ichigo they, and they, um, you know, they never assigned a gender to the child. And then this, and the, the like smaller company that would give them less money was like, we love that. Let's do it. But the bigger company was like, no, we're just going to make it a little boy because you got to sell games with, um, that are, that have boy characters and we like men or whatever. Um, and so, you know, that was like a huge creative loss and then like being forced to do a sequel and then these men being like super, super sexist to, to Sadie, like, I was on Sadie's side. I, I really was rooting for them to take the the other offer. But then when Sam comes out and he's like, I need the money to survive, you know, it's like, how do you how do you say no to that? Right. And should you? That's what I mean. I, I was sitting there during that whole scene just with my heart in pieces for both of them. Because Sam does need the money to survive, but you know, they did really take away some of the things that made Ichigo Ichigo that they were really, really strict about in the beginning when they were making these decisions was that Ichigo would be genderless. And I, it just, again, this book is very emotional, but without being horribly devastating is the way I put it in my notes. Yeah, it's like a very small slice of life almost. Like, it's very big to the characters, of course, but like, in terms of like the world, it's a it's just a very small story, and I think that there's something that allows like about that that allows it to be like even more personal and beautiful. Oh, and it, it hits all that much more hard because it is a slice of life, and it is such a big deal to them. But life carries on completely around it. You know, they just keep going, and then it's. I don't know. So good. Also, just so many references that felt real to someone who, I guess, given their ages, they're quite a bit older. They're Gen X, solidly. But, like, still things that are very much in my cultural realm that made it feel Mm -hmm. real. The only part that got me will inject a little moment of funny into this episode because I feel like we've gotten pretty deep. This is the book I was (laughs) referring to when I sent the message about the book Pet Peeve. Because there's, there mm-hmm. is a passage where Sadie is, like, describing a camera, and she's like, or was this a different book? I don't know. Uh, never mind. I'm going to stop telling <laughs> this story. Anyway. Okay. Sometimes books... I'll finish the pet peeve part. Sometimes books have a tendency to, like, over-explain historical things, even though it was, like, set in ostensibly the present when the story is being told. Like, back in this time, they didn't have digital cameras, but, like, it was, like, the late <laughs> 90s. Of course they didn't have digital cameras, but the characters are in their present when we're we're in this story. I don't know. Um, I also was very tempted to um, search the name of all the other referenced games and see if, like, those timelines <laughs> matched up. But I also decided that was too much work. Yeah. And that it would only end in annoyance when they didn't match up. <laughs> but I think Gabrielle Zevin probably did more research than that because... She seems very much like she is into games and somehow managed to write what is a niche novel about gaming that does not feel niche. 
Yeah, no, that was one of the things I was going to mention in my final thoughts, which I think I've said all my final thoughts now. So anyway, but um, like the gaming aspect was really like accessible and really beautiful and a really good plot device, even though like I personally am not what one might call a serious gamer, unless you consider Animal Crossing and The Sims 4 serious games. As a Sims player, I consider The Sims very serious. (laughs) If you're not using cheat codes to build your house, what's even the point of gaming? Truly, truly. Motherload all day. Right. But yeah, like, it was a book about gaming, but it also was not at all a book about gaming. Um, And so I think there's really... think maybe you'll enjoy it on even, like, an additional level if you, like, are a gamer or if you design games. But, like, I don't think not knowing very much about gaming took anything away from this at all. And I think that that was a very hard needle to thread, and I think she did it wonderfully. That's pretty much exactly what I was going to say. Because I am also not a serious gamer. And all of the gaming stuff did feel really accessible to me. And I think you could have swapped in a lot of different... Like industry. industry. That's I was like hobby, but it's not a hobby. Like it's their job. They develop games. I do not want to minimize how much freaking work stuff like that is. Like industry is a much better word. Thank you. Industry with shared experiences and it would have worked. But it's also clear that there's a lot of references in here to games like Metal Gear Solid and stuff that if you are a big gamer, you're you're going to be into. It, you're going to appreciate those. But you don't have to be a big gamer to appreciate them. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a big gamer. I would say the only game I ever really spent any time playing were all the Nancy Drew computer games. But I did... <laughs> AKA the best games of all time. Yes. I did specifically play most of them with, like, three of my friends in my parents' computer room in the dark, like, all together. We wouldn't play unless we were all together playing. It was a group oh gosh, activity. I so much. So... That is something, you know, that I do have a small experience of gaming really bringing a group together because we would, like, go to, like, the Best Buy the day the, the game came out and purchase the copy and run home and download it on the computer and play. And they, like, lined the CD shelf above my parents' computer because why put important things like TurboTax or AOL up there? No, <laughs> Nancy Drew Games only. So... You know, I do have that shared experience, and I can relate a little bit with that, but at the same level, clearly not the same experience that Sam and Sadie have with games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I could go on about this book for much longer, but we've kind of run out of the things we meant to talk about. Um, yeah, I think there's there's fun little asides, basically, but I think that's that's the bulk of what we wanted to talk about with, like, the actual book. Because I think I your bullet point about the most brilliant idea ever, I think it's worth talking about. Oh, yeah. But it's not necessarily, like, this book specific in that way. Yeah. It, it's something that I find really, like, interesting and fascinating, though. Because, like, you know, in the context of Tomorrow Times 3, you know, they, these characters create Ichigo and it's the most brilliant moving video game like of all time like it's iconic and it's really interesting to me whenever whenever authors have to create something that their characters came up with that is like that brilliant in universe um but also like has to read as brilliant to the readers 
it, like in particular when characters are like brilliant renowned songwriters or whatever i just think it's really like the pressure that an author must feel to like, come up with something to like fit into that mold like especially when they're having to like write song lyrics or whatever or like come up with this idea for a game that like changes oh i think about that all the time i can't think of a specific example of it right now but there have been many other books where i'm like oh no it often is heist books that's what it is like the the characters Mm. are coming up with like these insane plans to pull off this heist but that also means like the author is coming up with them and while the author isn't like navigating being shot at in an ice palace or whatever um, they're still, like, coming mm-hmm. up with the convoluted methods that the characters are using to, like, plan and execute the heist. And I'm just like, my brain does not do this. I would love to devour all of all the books like this, but my brain could never. Mm-hmm. But I think that's really fascinating. I think they, that Gabrielle Zevin did it really well. Yes. Um, I also just wanted to touch on the title, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, is from uh, Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 5. The soliloquy that Macbeth gives after his wife, after he's told that his wife has died. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And uh, so that, we didn't really talk about it at all in the text, but uh, Marx was an, an actor at college and he did a bunch of Shakespearean plays. And there was this whole plot about how he like really was never cast as leads because he was Asian and people are racist. And it was the 90s. Um, but he does do this soliloquy and it ends up being an Easter egg in a video game later on. But this is one of the few soliloquies that I like remember actually studying, um, and it being about like the futility of life, like going on living when life is just like a slow, monotonous march towards death. And like, what's the point of fighting fate? And, you know, I feel like there's that viewpoint and then there's the opposite viewpoint of like, well, that, like, that is the point of life is that you just have to keep going and you have to find meaning in it. And I think that this book kind of illustrates that really beautifully. It is a perfect title. And it is also, as I said earlier, there were some things that just kept popping up and pulling through. And, and the Macbeth thing was definitely one of them, which is also like a, a meta call to the title. Like the whole, the whole thing, it's woven through. And it also does really perfectly represent essentially the takeaway (laughs) like Mm -hmm. that we are we are going on life is full of sound and fury Mm -hmm. and in the end we still keep going so it's yep definitely something I, i really liked the title and i also didn't know that going in because i'm i have not read a lot of shakespeare i mean it's a classic so it goes against my being um (laughs) <laughs> so I, I didn't know that that reference going into it and I loved getting to find that out organically within the text yeah that's a really good way to do it I also um I like I remembered the soliloquy a little bit from high school but I did ironically know that it was Macbeth because of Hamilton mainly okay <laughs> yeah I mean I have not I've watched Hamilton but a lot of things like that just go shoop 
Whoosh. Yep. Just fair. I don't know. It. Eh. Another thought that I had. Uh, have you seen the movie Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds? No, I just Googled it because I saw that note and I was like, what the <laughs> heck is Free Guy? Um, I just, I, this book weirdly had a similar plot point to Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds, where Ryan Reynolds is a non-playable character that like starts to become sentient. Um, but anyway, Jodie Comer and our fave Steve Harrington, um, oh. what's his name? Joe Keery. Um, he, they, in the real world were gaming partners who like loved each other, but had a falling out. And then they have to, like, reunite to save the game or whatever. So I was just, like, the whole time I was like, oh, hey, it's just, you know, in, in no other regard is this similar to the movie Free Guy other than um, a, a male-female gaming partners. Uh, it does also have Taiko Waititi, which means we've got another callback to something else we've done this <laughs> summer. So <laughs> it the summer of John Green and gay pirates. Yes. Uh no, I've never seen Free Guy, and I'm I'm gonna refuse to watch it on principle now. But oh, it's cute. It's funny. You should watch it. I probably I might eventually. I I really want to finish The Bear first, but <laughs> mm, oh, how is that? I've heard good. Things. Uh, we, we've only watched four episodes. It's really good. We can talk offline because we're gonna tangent, and I have a, another yep, tangent yep, yep, I want to yep, yep. spend time on. I also noticed you pulled the story graph stats, which I think is fun because yes. I forgot story graph existed for the past four months. <laughs> I love Storygraph. Um, mainly, I actually pulled the wrong one because I was pulling it off of a review and I thought it was right, but the, and it was the one that I liked the most. But anyway, uh, plot or character-driven? Clearly character-driven. Strong character development? Yes. Um, lo- this one, lovable characters, is the one where I was like, I put it's complicated and I saw a bunch of other people put it's complicated, but... The um the overall yeah, sixty five percent say yeah yes lovable characters compared to twenty eight it's complicated, um so I I was wrong when I pulled that oh oh this ties back offline we were talking a little bit about not okay which just came out on Hulu and I watched earlier and how they had to basically put a disclaimer on the front of the movie that like you're not supposed to like the female character, um mm-hmm. and we were talking about how it is much more common in books to have like non-likable characters than it is maybe in like movies as a media format and so we're we're kind of used to that and I definitely think this falls into the category of maybe not the most like likable characters because of what they do but in the end the way this novel is written it's clear we're supposed to love them despite their flaws yeah I almost think maybe they're like lovable but not likable or they're just not likable during like parts of their life but like who among us is always likable. You right. Know? So I think it's, it's a very good way to do it. Um, but there are definitely times where I was annoyed very much with both of the characters, particularly as we have talked at not at nauseum. I think, I think it's complicated is the, the answer here is, is what I would put because I think that it's recognizable that we are supposed to love the characters based on the way that this novel is written but I also don't mm-hmm. think that they're like, yeah, like, like, likable. It's complicated and it's meant to be because it's meant to make you think mm-hmm. about people and flaws. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to flaws of characters, a main focus. Yes. Resounding yes. <laughs> um, and then diverse cast of characters. Yes. Yeah. I. This is a really, the stats reflected. I think that 
you know, there's some books where we've looked at the stats and we're just like, yeah, no wonder we didn't like this fucking book. <laughs> um, and and it yeah, and the opposite way, this one checks all the oh, no wonder we fucking liked this book. One hundred percent. Yeah. So I, I really think that at the end of the day, we're gonna have to tell you guys, read this damn book like soon. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think I definitely would have. Uh, recommended it at the start of the episode but like now that we've talked about it for an hour like I am recommending it even harder yeah and I think a lot of people who say that they only like I don't know this is gonna come out all wrong I shouldn't do this on the fly I'm gonna try it um we'll get through it together okay this is a book I think in many ways for people who think books have to mean something but instead of being an awful, terrible, hard-to-read book, like those people often recommend, this book is so readable and lovely and also does mean something. Yeah, I think that that's a great way to put it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I still spend too much on my R books hate follow that I, I tend <laughs> to, to give a little more annoyance to people who are constantly like, how can you read fiction? It is so meaningless you are not spending your time on something worthy um and i i think what i'm trying to get at is that they would probably consider this book worthy but it it's so much more than that in its own right yeah i agree 100 i um i added as my as my final thoughts i again i went through most of my final thoughts but it occurred to me like this book is is a well right like it's a it's a pretty small narrow um scope but it just keeps going deeper and deeper the more you dig into it um so i thought i think that you should read it when you were typing that i thought you were saying this book is like a well when someone asks you to explain (laughs) it uh your version is definitely way better but i'm (laughs) i'm gonna go ahead and say that this book is a well when they ask you to explain it a well and also a well yes I love that. Yeah. Um, and as you know, that you should you should listen to us when we tell you that books are wells or wells. Because we're right. And we should say it. Okay, Katie had the absolute perfect sign-off there. But I did want to talk about uh, Upgrade by Blake Crouch, like, really briefly. Because I did say that this was a um, John Green summer with a side of nerdy science. So I just wanted to let you know that we have not neglected the nerdy science. We had talked about Upgrade or Tomorrow Times 3 for this this episode or, like, doing both. And Katie has not finished Upgrade yet. So I will not be spoiling at all. Um, But I do want to say that I have read most other Blake Crouch novels. Katie, you have read Dark Matter, correct? Yeah, Dark Matter and... Um, Recursion? Yes. Okay. This is a non-spoiler comment. I think Upgrade is probably one of the best. Ooh, I'm excited about that. I don't know if it fully supplants Dark Matter, but I don't know if Dark if Dark Matter has, like, rose-tinted glasses as my first Blake Crouch novel. That's fair. I, I started to reread Dark Matter before Upgrade came out. I had, when I started it, I had plenty of time to reread both it and Recursion, um, and then life got in the way, so I haven't yet. But I remember really, really, really loving Dark Matter, and I really liked Recursion, but Recursion was, like, almost too complicated for me. That's how I feel, and I think 
that upgrade doesn't have that level of complication. I like I needed like a tick counter next to me for recursion basically to like figure out where we were. You know yeah, what like I mean? Like I fully needed to like diagram recursion. Right. And upgrade doesn't I don't think it requires that and I think it also has it goes back a little more to some of the like slight social commentary that like dark matter had built into the sci-fi novel. Um, so I did get that one through Book of the Month, and I straight up devoured it. I was like, I'm sorry. I cannot do anything until I finish Upgrade. I actually, like, didn't really eat lunch one day at work because I was like, I would rather just read Upgrade during lunch. Dang. I, w- I really wanted to finish this fucking book. Okay. Well, I'm excited. I, I started it. I'm not very far into it today. I was either going to power through it or think more about tomorrow times three so we could talk about it today. So since we decided to record today... I uh, put it down, but I will pick it back up tomorrow and oh, yeah. I'll be able to talk to you about it soon. I am really excited to talk to you about it, but I did want to just add on that we hadn't neglected our, our little bit of science. We'll we'll get there. We'll probably make it an <laughs> aside on a future episode, not actually do a full episode on it. But if you if you have thoughts on Upgrade, um, let us know in a couple of days so Katie has time to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I probably will have finished it by the time we post it. Let's say that. That's so probably you're fair. Good to, you're good to give us things all right with that i guess it's time for us to go um and remember we are right and we should say it (laughs) pour yourself a glass of wine let's start reading in between the lines never know what we might find yeah it could be magic oh Rose Tinted Glasses is hosted by Bailey Utrecht and me, Katie Phillips. Our theme song is by Anna Boss, and our logo is by Baby Truth Collection. We really appreciate everybody that listens, and we will talk to you all in a couple of weeks.